That last hymn we sang, anybody familiar with that? Yes. You know where it came, do you know where it came from? Anybody know where that, where we may have heard it before? So in England, this is, in England, this is the, one of the most popular hymns, and this is the tune they sing to, but it was at Prince William and Kate's wedding. Hello. Remember that? Yeah. This one. This that we sang this morning. Don't you remember? You've got it on DVD, Ken. Okay. All right. Well, let's pray. It's really high at that one part, though. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes to what you would have us to see uh, this day and always in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, where I left off uh, before we um, went off on the parish retreat was we were talking about this idea of identity and how we relate to people and the idea of false teaching and heresy in the church and the difference between the church in Corinth, which was engaging in uh, a lot of bad things uh, like suing one another and uh, not being deferential at the table with one another and... So creating a class system within the church, those who are in and those who are out. Uh, There was a lot of uh, sexual stuff going on uh, from, um, you know, there was one guy that they're having a real problem with because he had entered into a relationship with his stepmother, and uh, Paul had some things to say about that. And in spite of that, and Corinth was a crazy place to begin with. So it's sort of like Paul's first letter to Las Vegas. I mean, it's sort of like, of course this is happening in Las Vegas. Um, we, we shouldn't be too surprised, but Corinth was a pretty, uh, it was a Navy town. It was right there on the water. Uh, it was actually one of the few places where you could cross um, the Adriatic to the Aegean because of a, of a canal that they dug across the isthmus. So, um, so it was a pretty busy place, and uh, lots was going on, uh, but the gospel had taken root there. And then uh, we talked about uh, the Galatians and uh, how their issue was not really uh, sexual immorality or suing one another or anything like that, but theirs was actually a doctrinal issue, and it came about as a result of a heresy uh, perpetuated by a group called the Judaizers. And those are the ones saying that if you are going to be in fellowship with God, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised, you need to keep the dietary laws, uh, you need to basically, you have to be Jewish, in, in religious devotion and practice while uh, believing in Jesus. Now, that's not to say that there weren't Jews who were doing that already, uh, but weren't forcing it upon people. Uh, but uh, what was happening in the church there in Galatia was that um, they were beginning to preach that and teach that as truth, that Jesus was not enough to save you, that you needed to add all of these other things on. And Paul went so far as to say that if anyone tries to tell you that, if anyone preaches to you another gospel, they are anathema, right? They're out. They're they're outside the bounds, actually, of the church. And so the church in Galatia was actually in jeopardy of being unchurched, of ceasing to be a Christian body, where in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, there was no, uh, there was really no, doubt that Paul was writing to a church and he wasn't going to unchurch them, although he had some things to say about discipline within the life of uh, the congregation. And uh, at the very end, David Tanner asked me, are we the church in Corinth? Are we the church in Galatia? 
And I think I can speak for the Advent and say that we are, you know, it's like, would you rather have a root canal or an aneurysm? Uh, and uh, although clearly there's a better choice, and, that, and we are that. We're, we're the church in Corinth. Uh, where we have people within the life of our body who mess up, who make uh, grave mistakes and uh, that we have to deal with from time to time. I mentioned a situation uh, involving money in my last congregation where we actually had to exercise discipline at the communion rail because we would have, it was a real estate deal gone bad, and there were about 20 people in the congregation uh, involved in it, and we had a little tiny rail, and we actually we had two lines coming up to like we do here, and people would start switching lines so that they wouldn't have to kneel next to the person that they were in a lawsuit with. And, uh, and it was very obvious, and the congregation started talking about it, and that's a big thing. If it begins to cause scandal in the congregation, you, you need to deal with it. And it was a really awful situation. Uh, but it's amazing how uh, sitting down with them and talking, they even thought it was awful. They, they just said, you know, this is, this is not a good situation, and we want some help walking through this. And, uh, and so we talked about uh, those, uh, those kinds of things. And so, uh, within the life in the church in Corinth, uh, you, you have people and Paul, that Paul did not condone the behavior of the church in Corinth, but he didn't unchurch him. And uh, I did a Sunday school class a while back uh, that actually, um, there was a lot of Q&A afterwards, and there, was, uh, there were a couple folks who really came at me, which I was glad that they did, and really tried to take me to task on it. But... I mean, we're, when I say that we're the church in Corinth, I would say that the American church in general is the church in Corinth uh, for a number of reasons. And how what was happening in Paul's day is really manifesting itself in the life of the church today, or rather the larger culture in, in our nation today. And that is that the, one of the greatest idols in our world today is the idol of the self. Uh, that the autonomous, in charge, I'm going to determine what is right for me, and no outside agency can impose itself upon me. And so whether you're protesting in the streets, or whether you've built a log cabin in Montana, um, or uh, is a little more subtly, uh, and some things I'm about to, to bring up. And so I find today that if you speak out against self-determination, self-fulfillment, self-discovery, you'll get steamrolled. You'll get into huge trouble. Even if you see the road that they're going down is destructive. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pursue your dreams. Absolutely. But I would imagine anybody in here who is right thinking would say, well, your dreams have a limit, right? Well, what's your dream? If one of my children said, my dream is to climb the Washington Monument and rappel down it before I turn 10, I would say, that's a stupid and bad dream, child. You know, I mean, you see what I'm saying? That, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of being flippant, but there are other things that people do in life, but we feel often like we really can't say anything. We feel paralyzed that we really can't say anything. And part of that is rooted in our culture, but also there's also a fear that if we do say something, it might push them away from us, right? And I find that to be more of a fear in my life than the, the fear of speaking uh, speaking out. And so in, in our culture, uh, there's a real culture war going on that's manifesting itself in a whole bunch of areas, uh, but primarily uh, it's, it's about the self. 
There is a book out there, and I think it's called The Vanishing Middle. Rich Webster mentioned it the other day. Uh, see, I used Rich Webster's name in class. Listen to that, Rich. Rich Webster, he's the rector of St. Luke's. So uh, Rich uh, mentioned a book that I'd seen bits and pieces of, and it's this idea of the vanishing middle, which is you have your family and your friend, your immediate close sort of knit friends, and then you have like these acquaintances, like Facebook friends and sort of people out on the periphery. And what our culture has largely lost today are things like neighbors. Right? How many of us actually know who our neighbors are and have some sense of shared life with them? We know what's going on with them. I'm not saying that you should be you know, looking in your neighbor's uh, windows or anything, but, but that you have an idea of who your neighbors are, or even church, you know, even church. And so marketers who are always ahead of the church and ahead of the curve with everybody else in talking about this, they try desperately to create these middle places. Starbucks. You walk into Starbucks and what do you see? People drinking coffee, but, but are they just drinking coffee? Right, they're hanging out with people, they're working, they're on their laptop, they're doing stuff, they're engaged in things. And so basically, uh, Starbucks has become the community center of our modern age. Right? That's, that's what's happening, that's the gathering place, and that's uh, Starbucks trying to uh, capitalize on, on the vanishing uh, middle ground. And with that, uh, it means that uh, the self is the most important, the individual, and how that individual sees themselves and how that individual wants to live their life is the most important thing. Full stop. Full stop. Now, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, when talking about, now this is a little bit of a political statement, but he was reflecting on the New Deal back in the 1930s, and he said, in a democracy, the crowning triumph of a revolution is its acceptance by the opposition. In a democracy, the crowning triumph of a revolution is its acceptance by the opposition. So they're not even saying, um, you know, it, I think that one of the, the, where we're seeing this played out is you can still be opposed to certain things. You can sort of stand in the way and say, okay, there's a problem here, but you've got to be okay with it. You've got to be okay and kind of get out of the way and let, and let people uh, do uh, their thing. And so I think that part of it is uh, in our culture is the church has contributed to it. Uh, not only are we very quiet to speak out uh, on things that need speaking out on. Uh, for instance, I'm still amazed by the number of people who come up to me and say, like ministers, because that's who I hang out with, uh, ministers who are just like, wow, you really are an Episcopal minister. Look, you got your little Muslim thing. Wow, you've really uh, very, very uh, uh, broad-minded. And, uh, and I've said, no, actually, um, actually, this is uh, the symbol that ISIS is painting on Christian homes. Uh, it's the uh, Arabic character for the letter Nun, which is N, uh, which they call Christians Nazareans. And so they paint that uh, on the house, and then underneath it they write, this house belongs to the Islamic State. And uh, you have options, you can convert, you can pay an exorbitant tax that no one can ever afford, uh, or you can flee, or you can flee. And, uh, and of course, what are we saying? People fleeing, right? We have a huge refugee crisis right now in the world. And even in a world that is dominated by 24-7 news, I'm amazed by how few people really are aware of what's going on with the refugee crisis 
uh, in uh, in our world. And um, I know that uh, you know there's there's a sense in which you can't take everybody because your own infrastructure can only accommodate so much. But I was a little uh, depressed when I saw that the Orthodox Patriarch of Bulgaria. How about that for a business card? Uh, the Orthodox, <clears throat> who's the head of the church in Bulgaria. <clears throat> is encouraging the government to shut its borders to refugees. And I just thought, well, no wonder. <laughs> no wonder nobody wants to go to church in Bulgaria. Uh, they don't even want them in the country. And one of the things, I don't know if you've been reading about this, the number of these refugees who are becoming Christians. So right now there's a church in Berlin that is made up primarily of refugees who left their countries of origin as Muslims who are now Christians by the thousands. And a lot of that has to do with, one, God is intervening in their life and he's opening their eyes to his gospel. And, uh, and another thing, too, M- Muslims actually have a great deal of respect for Jesus. Uh, so they don't turn their note. They have different ideas about who he is and they have a great deal of respect for Mary. Um, but they have no problem talking about Jesus. He's in the Koran, actually. And, uh, and so they have some uh, familiarity with him. Uh, but then they get to Berlin and other parts of Germany and Eastern and Western Europe, and people are, Christians are opening their homes to them. They're saying, come in, we'll help take care of you. I mean, you've probably seen the footage of these uh, people on rafts. And of course, uh, a photo that got a lot of attention was the photograph of the little boy dead face down on the beach who had drowned um, uh, trying to to get to Turkey. So it's, uh, you know... um, I have a hard time believing that those people in those rafts are thinking, uh, my right to self-determination is under attack. <laughs> uh, I don't think that that's what's happening. I mean, they are very much in touch with the reality of what's important in life and the uh, things that are happening as they're immediately gravitating toward one another and creating communities because they're all they have, right? Apart from Jesus, that's it. And so... Uh, but the church has not always done a very good job of that in being open and hospitable. Um, I think it's very funny. I don't know who the architect was that started it, someone back in Norman days. Um, but we want our churches to be uh, places of hospitality and welcome, uh, and yet we build them all to look like forts. Um, uh, sort of like welcome, come into our fort. Uh, and, um, but, and they're pretty, but, but you know that's kind of what churches look like now. Uh, But also we've contributed to it, moreover, uh, by our failure to speak out about different things, but also um, by our failure to help and guide the sheep in the pews. Now, one of the dangerous ideas about the Reformation is that you could actually sit down with your Bible as an individual and read it, and uh, and God would lead you to the truth. And I believe that wholeheartedly, absolutely. Uh, But even me... Uh, there are parts of the Bible where I kind of look at it and I think, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I need to actually tease that out. I, I need someone uh, to come alongside me. A little bit like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, he was going along in his chariot. Uh, and this is in the book of, A- of Acts, where we are. And uh, as he's going along in the chariot, uh, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Paul, uh, Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And uh, the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I understand unless someone tells me? And at that, Philip jumped up into the chariot and began to explain to him, starting with that passage, the good news about Jesus Christ, and he becomes a Christian. And so there's no shame in saying, 
what does this mean? Or people coming in, I mean, I have people come in and things that you would even think would be almost clear, but actually when real life comes to play, it gets complicated. Things like, what does it mean to honor my mother and father? Does it mean that I don't put them in this home or that I do put them in this home? Does it mean that uh, I try to show up a little bit more for Christmas? Does it mean I have to tell them, look, it's a whole lot easier for you to pack your bags and come to us than it is to load up a minivan with four children and a thing on top to come to you for two days, and or, not that I'm speaking out of experience, uh, in order to come to you for two days, uh, and then because we're in the area, then we gotta go see Uncle Bob, and then we gotta go see, you know. You know, you wanna honor your parents? What does that look like? What does that look like now in our station of life? And so the, the church does need to come alongside and say, okay, let's read this together. And what is the Bible saying? And oftentimes, you know, I was in a Bible study once, and we were encouraged to read. Actually, it's a very good way to do Bible study. Everybody reads a passage, the same passage of Scripture. Then you get together, and you tell the other person what that passage, you break off into groups of two, and you tell that person what that Bible passage means to you. And they tell you what it means to them. And then when you get back in the big group, you try to articulate what... It forces you to listen, which is a good thing. Uh, except um, rather than asking, what is the Bible saying to me? Uh, we ought to ask the question, what is the Bible saying? What is the Bible saying about God. Right? The Bible certainly speaks to our state and our condition and where we are in our lives, uh, but ultimately it, it, it speaks the truth about who God is and what He has done uh, for us. Okay, since I only have 10 minutes left, we're going to talk about sexuality. Okay. So one of the areas in which it's bubbled up is the area of human sexuality. And I'm just going to say this. Sex has become a total and complete idol in our culture. It just is, almost to the point of being ridiculous. Uh, the more I sort of look into this issue, the more alarmed I am that sex has now become a right. Like in and of itself, sex is a right, which is kind of funny because you need someone else to exercise that right, right? You can't, you know, that, it's just sort of funny. So if, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, conundrum. Um, but the whole idea of sexual fulfillment as a right um, is, is before us. And, um, you know, especially in, in our culture, I will hear things like, well, it's not natural to be, to be celibate. It's not natural to refrain from sexual activity. Celibacy is a calling, is what people will say. And I just think, Celibacy is a calling. Do you want to tell that to a group of 17-year-old boys? You know, to say that it applies to some of them, but not to all of them? I mean, if they're called... No, what would you say? Celibacy, right? That's what you would say to a group of 17-year-old boys. And, but this idea that you really are not living life to the fullest unless you're sexually fulfilled. And, of course, we know that that's not true from a Christian perspective because, one, Jesus was not sexually active, Right? And if anybody lived life to the fullest here on this earth, it was Jesus Christ. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. But I, you know, one of the very sad things in our culture in not dealing with this is if you uh, read any of the stories about this terrible shooting in Oregon, 
Do you remember what this, this is the second time this has happened in a mass shooting in America where the shooter has articulated this. Do you remember what really made him mad? What set him over the edge? He said that he didn't have a girlfriend, right? Um, now clearly he, he had some issues, uh, but this idea that of an entitlement uh, to have a girlfriend. Um, during the general convention this summer, uh, up in, um, where was it? Where was it? Salt Lake. Salt Lake City, thank you. So it was in Salt Lake City, and they were talking about the issue of human sexuality, and a very brave young woman stood up and said this, Deputy Katrina Hamilton of Olympia, that's up in Washington State, told deputies she has been living in a faithful, monogamous relationship for the past six years with her boyfriend, but she feels that the church's silence about such relationships is, quote, passive judgment. She says, we live together, we share some expenses, and despite the admirable and laudable efforts of some friends and family, I have no interest in having kids or getting married. While I know that could change one day, right now my relationship is not seen as having any independent worth, only a precursor to something I don't intend to do. She said that by the church only she said that said that by the church only acknowledging one kind of a family, quote, we imply that others don't count. She continues saying, in my Sunday school class, I teach the kids, this is when I passed out, uh, I teach the kids that when it comes to sacramental rights, all may, some should, and none must. Right now, it's clear that when it comes to marriage, we've acquiesced to secular society saying that marriage is all must eventually. We don't assume all lay people will be ordained yet, ordained, yet we assume all single people will one day be married. And she closed her words with, it would mean a lot to me personally to have my life acknowledged, if not accepted. Now, uh, this is where the rubber meets the road, uh, because it is a reality that marriage, in large part, is on its way out the window. There are fewer and fewer marriages taking place in the United States today, and more couples deciding that they are going to cohabitate uh, together. Now, before, you know, we used to call that living in sin, uh, and, uh, and we still do, but it's, you know, before it was, you know, that was the excuse. You know, so one of the things that I will tell a premarital couple, if, if they're living together, I'll actually tell them, you can throw Jesus out the window. Statistically, you're almost 90% more likely to get divorced than a couple that doesn't live together. Just stats. And that kind of makes them, and I'll even take it further and say, so there was actually another couple that did premarital counseling here today that are not living together, so statistically, you're getting divorced. Like, that'll get their attention. And they're just like, can we bring Jesus back into it? I'm like, yes, let's. Um, so, so that aside, but one of the things I'll tell them is I'll say, just be honest with me. Just be honest with me, because I'm, I'm going to figure out eventually. And so I had one couple that gave me two separate addresses, and I had to call them to reschedule. And I called them up in the answering machine. This is Tom and Sally leaving. And I was like, ah, <laughs> liars. And then they'll come in and they'll say, well, it's really for financial reasons, and it's just easier because my lease is up and his lease. And, and they have an arrangement a little bit like what we're talking about here from uh, Katrina Hamilton in Olympia, Washington. And so 
But that was always meant, I think, uh, most people who engage in that, they do see it as a precursor to marriage. And we fell in the bad trap of thinking, uh, I even have a family member who recommended to my brothers and I uh, that before you marry anybody, you should live with them. Now, clearly this individual had never seen the statistics with that, but logically they're thinking, well, why wouldn't you give it a, a test run? Uh, but for any of you uh, who have done that, uh, something does happen after you get married. Things are different. They're just different. But now, um, and we, I can get in that another time of why they're different. A lot of it has to do with managing expectations. If you're just kind of splitting expenses and then you go to one joint checking account, get ready for some sparks. So, um, uh, because all of a sudden, you, there are implications to what's going on. But now it's shifted from a stepping stone mentality to pretty much what people do, right? People just kind of move in together. Why? Because there's a sense of self-fulfillment there, right? Katrina is very, very happy with the arrangement that she has. Now, if she wants kids or, or wants some, uh, a little bit more of a commitment, I mean, right now she says that she's in a faithful, monogamous relationship. She's been living with this guy for six years. Um, this is what works for her right now, right? This is what works for her right now. Uh, but um, it, it may work, it may not in the long run. So what is the church to say to that? Well, one, Katrina uh, Hamilton and her boyfriend would be more than welcome to come to the Advent. I would love, I, you know what, I might actually buy them a plane ticket to fly here uh, and just hang out with us for a week and, uh, and love on them uh, and be there for them and just minister to them. Uh, I probably would not let Katrina Hamilton uh, teach Sunday school. Um, why? Why? Uh, here we go. We're back in Corinth now. Why wouldn't I let uh, Katrina teach Sunday school? And this is actually the case, uh, and I'll just be completely honest with you. Somebody once asked, well, we need to have a policy dealing with whether or not we're going to let gays or lesbians teach Sunday school. Uh, and this is at all levels, children through adult. And I said, well, what would the criteria be? And they said, well, they would have to sign on to the Advent's understanding of theology. You know, they, they can't go in there and begin to ad undermine what the Advent believes. And I said, well, isn't that the standard for everybody? Right? Isn't that the standard that we hold for every? I mean, that is the standard. So anybody, regardless of what their sexual orientation is, there's an expectation that they would uh, be able to affirm and not undermine what the church is teaching on, on various, various issues. Uh, and so in the case of Katrina um, Hamilton, I'm not trying to pick one, but, you know, I, I wouldn't want her, I mean, she's already said, she tells the kids this. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want her telling the kids that this is an option. Why? Because we see it played out in our world that it ultimately leads to a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain and a lot of alienation, right? It just does. And, uh, and so the whole world is looking for affirmation, uh, frankly, in uh, all uh, the wrong places. Now, I do think she does hit on a pretty good point, and that is that marriage and any intimate relationship ultimately has to be more than just sex. So one of the things that I remember when I was in college and I experienced a couple years ago when I was meeting with a group of young men who were in, the early, in their early 20s and they wanted to talk about marriage and family and stuff like that, and just 
how unrealistic their expectations were. Just ask Lauren, when we took our little battery of tests, like Lauren had a pretty good idea of what she was getting into marrying me. I had no idea. You know, I thought it was just, you know, sunshine and lollipops and you know, I love you and you love me and this is great. And, um, but one of the things that I, that I find so remarkable is that I, I, I'll ask a group like this and ask any Christian man in their early 20s, well, why do you really want to get married? And at the top of their list is what? Sex, honestly. You know, I want, I, I want to ha- be, you know, better to, better to marry than to burn kind of, kind of idea. And I, I just, now that I've been married for a while, I just kind of smile and say, well, if that is at the top of your list, brother, are you in for a different story? Uh, because it's not what you think it is. Uh, sex is wonderful, and it's, it's a level of intimacy. Uh, but uh, for, if you've been married for a while, you understand that your intimacy actually transcends all of that. It goes beyond that, and you find yourself interacting and uh, relating to your husband or wife uh, on a much deeper level uh, than just having a sexual relationship with them. It's so much more uh, than that. But the church has somehow convinced young people that, um, that that's kind of the thing, right? They've, they've sort of forgotten the part that sex actually plays in uh, the marital uh, relationship. And so uh, I think that there's a real attempt to try around these lines of intimacy and friendship and marriage to create a culture of apathy, um, the culture really would just like us to stop caring about people. But we can't. We can't stop caring uh, about people. And uh, I hate to say it, but we're going to have to stop uh, because I have to go into church. But I just to, I'll, I'll allow you, I've said a lot without really landing the plane because of our time crunch. But anybody have anything to say, questions, comments, concerns? Really? Oh, Charlie Sharp. Because I, 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 I put my finger on the third rail today, and no one's saying anything. I was going to say that uh, getting married just to sanction the legitimacy of sex is the old conundrum we always have the advent of the law over grace. I mean, that's living back under the law. Just get, you know, and, and really the way, of, the, the solution, of course, is evangelism. Right. Sex is a terrible place to start the conversation. That's right. Yeah, so that, and that's, that's actually what we're going to get to next week, Charlie Sharp. So we're going to talk about that God is in the interest of changing hearts, not uh, changing prerogatives. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm not really interested in people's opinions. Um, sort of on the heels of my sermon, there's this really wonderful poster of this beautiful Aztec temple. And underneath of it, you know those pictures that are like supposed to be encouragers and motivators? And underneath of it, it says, loyalty. And then it says, All that we ask of you around here is your heart. Get it? Aztec Temple? Okay, anyway. Go watch Indiana Jones. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.